0: things are not always as they appear. Who who has encountered this phenomenon in life? Yeah, yeah, I thought long and hard I wanted to come up with some kind of like sleight of hand, kind of something to uh, really show off the idea of, uh, but I didn't, so mm, sorry for you. Um, But things are not always uh, as they appear. More specifically, um, probably is that Uh, we do not always see things the same way or perhaps the way that they really are. Um, An example of that would be uh, maybe when you were in school, there was a whole lot of stuff that you were taught in school that as you were learning it and watching just in complete boredom, staring at the blackboard, um, you thought, "Ah, I am never going to use this. I'm looking at you, complicated math, right? Like, um, you know, but, but... as you get older, you realize, oh, that's really important. And even if you're not the one that's actually applying it and using it, it you, you can see the value of those who are. Um, or, or maybe perhaps a situation where the one event happens and you see it from two different angles is probably um, maybe you experience this as, a, as a, a teenager, perhaps maybe as the parent of a teenager, um, but perhaps your son or daughter um, experiences a breakup. And as they're lying in their bed, locked in the room, just falling to pieces over this event that they're never going to be able to move on for and their life is falling apart over, you're out in the kitchen and you're popping the cork because you did not like the person they were with. And you're thinking, this son of mine or this daughter of mine is returning home and I have them again, right? One event, two very different views um, of that event event. And today I want to talk a little bit about a relationship um, that was not as it appeared. And specifically, I want to talk about the relationship between life and God. Okay. Because, because for many of us, life and God appear to be one in the same. That, that, is, that is, for many of us, we can't separate the two. And so because of that, there's this tendency within us to think when life is good, then God is good. And the flip side of that coin is when life is bad, then God is not good, right? A lot of you thought I was going to say God is bad, right? Threw you a curveball. But when life gets really, really bad, like how is all all of this happening to me, it's easy to assume A, that there's no personal God or B, perhaps there's no God at all because everything within your experience and what is going on within your life points in that direction and we so closely have the tendency to tie life and God together and it's very easy for disappointment in life to become disappointment in God. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah. If you haven't experienced it, you just aren't paying attention enough to realize you've experienced it and you've had that. And I understand this. I am not in any way getting down on anybody that has this idea. I understand it because when your dreams don't come true and when things aren't working out for you and you can't catch a break, And it seems like everybody around you is succeeding and moving forward and getting the things they want. And just for you, time after time after time, things are falling apart. They're not coming through. They're not working. It's easy to begin to equate God with how your life is going. And you decide, well, God must not be good. Or God must not be personal. Or God must not be active. Or perhaps maybe God isn't even real because when things don't work out, understandably, we turn our frustrations towards God. Now, what makes all of this kind of complicated and where it gets kind of sticky is that if you were, if you were taught to believe in a personal God, which I very much was, or that God is behind everything or a part of everyday events um, within not just your life, but within um, everybody in general, um, then it's virtually impossible to not confuse your experience with God. Those things are almost inseparable. And, and to place on him the frustrations that you feel in life, or, or to get to the point where perhaps because of those things, you don't even believe that he exists anymore. Now, we've been looking at some characters who were um, involved with and kind of per, on, the, on the edges or perhaps very much involved with the death of Jesus. And this week, we're looking at a character who, who there are elements of this character within us. And all of the characters that we've looked at so far have had that characteristic, that there's, there's elements of them within us. There's things that they do that we have the potential to be doing. And for some of them, there's things that they do that maybe, maybe we hope that we can do. And as we've done this, we've seen seen the, the futility of resisting God. We've seen the destruction of placing other things before God. And we're going to see something a little different with today's character. Because today's character, he had a life that had spun completely out of control. And this character, we don't know his name. And we don't know how old he was we don't know anything about his backstory. <laughs> so you're thinking, man, Annie, this is going to be a fascinating story. You don't know anything about this person. We're going to sit here and talk about it. Yeah. But this character, he found himself in a Roman jail condemned to death. And this guy was so violent and he was so unpredictable that, that he couldn't even be trusted as a slave. He, he couldn't even be trusted to be placed uh, to, be, to row a Roman galley. He couldn't even, none of that. His only value that he had in life left was only to the Romans and it was only for him to be an example of the futility of trying to resist Rome. And they had condemned him to death and they are going to crucify him as a warning to everyone else who may be thinking of defying Rome. And this guy, is, he's sitting in the cell and he's waiting for his turn on a cross. He, he, he knew what was coming. He had seen crucifixions before. He had seen the aftermath of crucifixions. He'd seen the remains of people who had been crucified. He had smelled that smell that went along with the crucifixion. And he knew exactly what he was in for. And he knew as he woke up that morning, he knew that he would curse and he would scream and he would be defiant. But in the end, death would take him. And once that happened, he knew he would be peeled off that cross. He would be thrown into a wheelbarrow, taken taken down to the south side of Jerusalem, down into the Valley of Gehenna. And he would be dumped in the city dump. And that's where he would be because nobody would be given permission to claim his body. There would be no defense for him. There would be no mourners for him. His family will have abandoned him. His friends have abandoned him. His government has abandoned him. And to him, he felt God himself had abandoned him. And so he would die A common criminal. But this guy decided, I may be going out, but I'm going out the way that I lived, which was defiant. But on the morning that they woke him up and drug him out of the cell and said, today's your day, you're going to die. He found out that he would not be dying alone that day, that there were two other men that would be dying with him. And one of the other people that would be crucified that same day was Jesus, the Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. And maybe, maybe, maybe he thought that perhaps the silver lining of this whole situation, if there's one to be found, is that because Jesus was such a high profile character, that perhaps the crowd for my final act of defiance would be large. And that I would be able to make an impression on those who were there. Now, Luke Luke gives us an idea of how all of this works out. And Luke, as he went through and, and he interviewed all of the people who were a part of the story of Jesus, and as he, he did his investigation to come up with the most accurate um, account of the life of Christ that he possibly could, he, here's what he discovered about that day when Jesus died. In Luke chapter 23, verse 32, it says this, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, Jesus, to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, when you're reading through the New Testament or any of the scriptures, when you're reading through the scriptures, we tend to read verses like this and just keep on moving in the story. And we just kind of fly by, okay, we get it. He was let out. There were two guys with him. Let's keep moving in the story. But there is so much packed in to little verses and little words like this. Within this description, within within this statement of what he said just happened, there is so much pain. There's so much noise that surrounds the event. There's so much violence and terror and agony. And in some cases, mourning, surrounding a crucifixion. And it's easy for them to just write, oh, and they were out and they got crucified and then let's go on to the next thing. But sometimes it would take hours, sometimes days for people on a cross to die. And there were several different ways that that the Romans had come up with crucifying people. It wasn't the exact same way every time, but every single one of the ways were brutal. Brutal. The Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they most certainly perfected crucifixion as both an, an instrument of torture and an instrument, instrument of warning. And the scriptures tell us that, that, that the criminals that hung on the cross to the left and to the right of Jesus hurled profanities, that they were defiant to the end, and they hurled insults and profanities at everybody, at the Roman soldiers who were carrying out the sentence, at the spectators who had gathered and were watching, at those who just happened to be passing by. I mean, they were just letting everybody who could hear their voice have it. And then as all of this is happening, all of the noise and all of the pain and all of the commotion as it's all going on, the two criminals hear the guy hanging in the middle of them, the Jewish rabbi, hear him utter a word that was probably extremely rarely used on a Roman cross. They heard the word father. And that was probably very rarely used because when men were dying, they usually didn't call for their fathers. They would call for their mothers. And so to hear this guy call for his father. It caught their attention. But the next words that he said were even more startling. And the next words that were said had certainly never been uttered from a person hanging on a cross. Verse 34, we find it. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they, the Roman soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lots. So while all of this is going on, all of the chaos and everything that's happening, as men are dying on both sides of him, Jesus, from the cross, prays for the men doing this to them. Verse 35, the people stood watching. And there were tons of people watching this event because Jesus was such a high profile person. This was an event that was taking place so close to the city of Jerusalem, which was a a high population area. Most of the town came out to the, came out to watch and there is something about tragedy and pain that is embarrassingly fascinating to people. And so they came out to watch but it wasn't just the townspeople. There was other groups of people there as well. So the people stood watching, and the rulers, they showed up. The very people who had been threatened by Jesus's authority, the very people who were threatened by his miracles and his words and his teachings, the very people who had arrested him and the very people who were having him killed, they were there too. And the rulers even sneered at him. him. It wasn't enough for them that he was dying. Here's what they said to him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. This was the group of people who had the most to lose by Jesus' success. This was the group of people who were constantly shamed by Jesus as they tried again and again and again to ask him questions, to discredit him, and he responded in the most perfect way anyone could respond every time and made them look foolish. But now they were having their moment. There were no more embarrassing answers to endure. There was no more fear of the crowd's They were back in control and it was time for them to take out the anger that they had carried against Jesus for two and a half years. Because here he was, hanging on a cross, harmless, an animal in a cage, if you will. And they were not going to let up on him until he was dead. And then there was another group. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And this is interesting because when you watch the Jesus movies and see the crucifixions portrayed, the people being crucified, normally it's portrayed that their feet are about three or four feet off the ground. So they're kind of up high and everybody's looking up at them and that's kind of the scene that was set. That's not how it was done. That's not how it was. Usually... In crucifixions, the feet were only about six inches off the ground, and the reason was is because this was an instrument of humiliation, and they wanted people to be able to walk right up to them, and be almost face to face with someone who is being crucified, and to be able to scream at them and mock them and spit in their face, and this is what was happening. So the soldiers came up to Jesus and began to mock him. They offered him wine vinegar, which was basically their cheap soldier version of a drink. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they referred to him as the king of the Jews because when Pilate decided that Jesus would be executed, he he ordered a sign to be made to hang above him that said, king of the Jews, And the Jewish leaders, when they heard this, they were like, no, 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 no. That's not what it should say. It needs to say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, nope, it's going to say he's king of the Jews because I want everybody to see it. And I want everybody to know that anyone who claims to be a king and to threaten Rome, this is what they have to look forward to. So the Roman soldiers, they play off this sign and they begin to mock him as the king of the Jews. And if all of that isn't enough, if all of these people just mocking and making what is already an unbearable experience even worse, the two criminals hanging on either side of him decide that they're going to join in. And they turn and they start piling on the abuse as well. Now, here's here's something interesting. Luke talks about one of the criminals, who's our guy, who's our our character for this morning. But Matthew, who, who was a follower of Jesus, tells us that both criminals began to turn and direct their animosity, not towards the people doing this to them, but towards Jesus. And the crowd, the religious leaders, the soldiers, even the other men being crucified were all hurling insults at Jesus. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why they started doing it. You can pick it up in the things that they said. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there and hurled insults at him, and here it comes. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the special one? right. Aren't you the one sent from God? Aren't you the Messiah? This should not be happening to you. This should not, if you were the Messiah and there was a just and righteous God, this would not be happening to you and this would not be happening to us. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Implication being, but you're not, are you? You're not the Christ. You can't save yourself. Besides, if there was a God, none of this would be happening. There's no justice in the world. There's certainly no justice in a personal God. And the interesting thing is this, and we can see this as we look back in hindsight at the story that we kind of know The whole thing of the interesting thing is is that if at any time during this whole event, either of these criminals would have asked the question, Where is God? the answer would have been, He's about 12 feet to your left, He's right next to you. And suddenly, in the midst of everything that was going on, in the midst of the chaos. And the confusion and the pain and the mocking and everything that's happening, everything. This guy, our guy, our criminal, he stops shouting. And he stops shouting because he begins to sense that there is something strangely selfless about the rabbi. That something is strangely different about this Jewish teacher. And with Jesus' prayer of forgiveness kind of echoing in his head, he realizes, wait a minute, this is a righteous man. We've got this wrong. So as one criminal is still mocking him, is still mocking Jesus, the other one kind of has an epiphany. Verse 40, but the other criminal, our guy, rebuked him. That is the criminal mocking Jesus. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? Don't you see? I mean, here's a man who has suffered just like we are suffering but yet he has not abandoned his faith in God. Here's a man who is experiencing the same pain that we are experiencing. And as we curse God and we give up on God, he still believes God can be called father. And this is a man who has not drawn conclusions about God based on the way life is treating him. And so suddenly there's this brand new category that's kind of created. He says, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly. He says to his fellow criminal, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And suddenly the wheels are spinning for this guy. And he's seeing Jesus in a way that nobody else involved in the scene is seeing him. And in Jesus's very last conversation before he dies, Jesus interacts not with a righteous man, not with a worthy man, not with a man who deserves to go down as the person who held the final conversation with Jesus before he died, but with one of the most unrighteous men in the entire city of Jerusalem. And here's how the thought process must have gone for our guy. It must have gone if an innocent man who suffers like a guilty man can maintain faith in God. If an innocent man who experiences life the way that I experience life can maintain faith in God, then how much more should I, a guilty man, for whom there is justification for my suffering, how much more should I maintain faith in God? And it dawns on him, this is the Messiah. And with everything that's going on around him, he somehow had the presence of mind to make this connection, to realize what was happening. And he turns his head and says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not because of anything I've done, Not because I deserve it, but in fact, the opposite, in spite of what I have done. Because if you can maintain faith in the midst of these circumstances, Jesus, then perhaps perhaps there is indeed a good and just God. I mean, that's amazing. For someone to be able to, in the middle of those circumstances, have that epiphany. And Jesus answered him Truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Not because you're rededicating your life, because listen, rededication of a life on a cross is worthless. It's worthless because you have no life left. There is no repentance and life change from a cross. There is no, from now on, I'm gonna walk the straight and narrow. There is no, from now on, I'm gonna dedicate myself to doing whatever I have to do to serve you. There's none of that. The only thing there is from a cross is a desperate plea for mercy and for grace. That's all there is. And Jesus looks at him when he gives that plea and he says, today you will be with me because, and we cannot miss this, because my thoughts about you and my feelings towards you are not reflected in what is happening to you. This is such a huge idea for us to grab a hold of. My thoughts and my love for you is not expressed in what you are experiencing. I am not, and God is not your personal experience, which there's so much to unpack in that. But what if that's true? What if life has left you broken, but not God? What if life has left you abandoned, but not God? What if life has not reflected the true nature of God? And make no mistake, this is Jesus' last message before his death. And then it happens. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And this curtain, this was the over engineered thick curtain that was the separation between the Spirit of God and people, that separated people from the Holy of Holies. And this event was God's declaration that now everyone is welcomed into the presence of God, everything that up to that point that had separated man from God was being removed on that hill through the death of Jesus. And then he spoke his last words. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, there it is again. Father who could have stopped this. Father who could have spared me. Father, who I decided to trust anyway, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So here's the question that we come to Have you confused life with God? Have you drawn conclusions about God because of what you've experienced? Because of things that have happened to you? Because of prayers that have gone unanswered? And it's natural. And it's easy to do that. In fact, it's almost unavoidable to do that. And if you were to come up here and you were to tell us your story, I mean, there's a chance that we would hear your story and we would say, well, of course, of course, you've lost your faith in God. Of course, you're angry. Of course, you've stopped praying. Of course, you've abandoned church. But here's the message of Jesus from the cross. He says, if you, if you forget everything else that I taught, This, remember this thing, God is not what you have experienced in life. God can be trusted in spite of your experience. And this is the story of nearly all of us. Because we will find in Jesus what we cannot find in life. That is grace, that is mercy, and that is unconditional love. Because Jesus experienced life the same way that we experience life. I mean, you go through and you read the account of the life of Jesus. He took life on the chin. I mean, he took it all. I mean, and he never played the God card, he never took the shortcut that was accessible to him at every moment. He never, never walked into the restaurant and said, 45 minute wait, I'm Jesus. I'd like the corner booth, please. And he could have. And over and over and over again, there was opportunity for Jesus to leverage himself and his power for his own benefit. And never one time did he do that. Jesus knew what it felt like to be lonely. Jesus knew what it felt like to be betrayed and abandoned. Jesus knew what it felt like to pray in a desperate moment to God and for God to respond, no. And so Jesus experienced life the way that we experience life. And through all of it, his, in spite of life, confidence in God has paved the way for us to have, in spite of life, confidence in God. And I have seen so many people throughout my years with this sort of confidence in God. People who have experienced things that by every every, every reasonable look, And every reasonable interpretation should have caused them to curse the very idea of God and walk away. But they didn't lose faith. And despite what they were experiencing, they knew that's not God. I can trust God. Some of you may be sitting next to some of those people this morning. And when you encounter those people, and when you hear their story, and when you see that they did not abandon their faith because of the things they experienced in life, there is something so life-giving and empowering about that, that when you're hearing their story, you're thinking, A, I don't know if I could ever do that. B, what do I got to do to be able to do that? And those are amazing moments. Life happens. It happens to all of us. But your experience is not God. And when you open your hands and surrender, as opposed to clenching your fists in anger, you become a candidate for the grace of God. So the question this morning is this. Will you be willing to surrender to God in spite of what life has handed you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, every single one of us in this room, at some point, has connected our experience with life to you in such a way that when life doesn't go right, only logical conclusion is that you are not God. But I thank you that beyond the magnitude of everything else that the cross meant, that within that event, you gave us this hope that you gave us this final, final message through Christ that our experience in life is not you and that regardless of what we experience, we can trust in you. That is such a difficult idea to wrap our minds around. That is such a counterintuitive concept But God, I pray, I pray that you help us to understand this amazing concept. And Lord, I pray that when we experience the things in life, or for some of us in this room who may be experiencing the things in life, that we would tend to connect to you and cause to question our faith in you, that God, you remind us, I am God, I am not your experiences I can be trusted. And even if I never did another thing for you, what I have done for you is already so amazing. Lord, I I am in awe of the extent you went to reestablish relationship with us and to create accessibility to you. And that as unworthy as we are, you have opened up access to you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out today. I hope to see as many of you as possible on Friday for a good Friday service. And if you can't make that, definitely looking forward to a great Easter celebration next week.